This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Tomb by H.P. Lovecraft. It's read by D.E. Whitcower. It runs 32 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. The Tomb by H.P. Lovecraft This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information and to find out how to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Tomb by H.P. Lovecraft Sedibus ut saltem placidis in morte quiescam. Virgil. In relating the circumstances which have led to my confinement within this refuge for the demented, I am aware that my present position will create a natural doubt of the authenticity of my narrative. It is an unfortunate fact that the bulk of humanity is too limited in its mental vision to weigh with patience and intelligence those isolated phenomena seen and felt only by a psychologically sensitive few, which lie outside its common experience. Men of broader intellect know that there is no sharp distinction betwixt the real and the unreal, that all things appear as they do only by virtue of the delicate individual physical and mental media through which we are made conscious of them. But the prosaic materialism of the majority condemns as madness the flashes of supersight, which penetrate the common veil of obvious empiricism. My name is Jervis Dudley, and from earliest childhood I have been a dreamer and a visionary. Wealthy beyond the necessity of a commercial life and temperamentally unfitted for the formal studies and social recreations of my acquaintances, I have dwelt ever in realms apart from the visible world, spending my youth and adolescence in ancient and little-known books, and in roaming the fields and groves of the region near my ancestral home. I do not think that what I read in these books or saw in these fields and groves was exactly what other boys read and saw there. But of this I must say little, since detailed speech would but confirm those cruel slanders upon my intellect which I sometimes overhear from the whispers of the stealthy attendants around me. It is sufficient for me to relate events without analyzing causes. I have said that I dwelt apart from the visible world, but I have not said that I dwelt alone. This no human creature may do, for lacking the fellowship of the living, he inevitably draws upon the companionship of things that are not, or are no longer, living. Close to my home there lies a singular wooded hollow, in whose twilight deeps I spent most of my time, reading, thinking, and dreaming. 
Down its moss-covered slopes my first steps of infancy were taken, and around its grotesquely gnarled oak trees my first fancies of boyhood were woven. Well did I come to know the presiding dryads of those trees, and often have I watched their wild dances in the struggling beams of waning moon, but of these things I must not now speak. I will tell only of the lone tomb in the darkest of the hillside thickets, the deserted tomb of the Hydes, an old and exalted family whose last direct descendant had been laid within its black recesses many decades before my birth. The vault to which I refer is an ancient granite, weathered and discolored by the mists and dampness of generations. Excavated back into the hillside, the structure is visible only at the entrance. The door, a ponderous and forbidding slab of stone, hangs upon rusted iron hinges and is fastened ajar in a queerly sinister way by means of heavy iron chains and padlocks, according to a gruesome fashion of half a century ago. The abode of the race, whose scions are inurned, had once crowned the declivity which holds the tomb, but had long since fallen victim to the flames which sprang up from a disastrous stroke of lightning. Of the midnight storm which destroyed this gloomy mansion, the older inhabitants of the region sometimes speak in hushed and uneasy voices, alluding to what they call divine wrath, in a manner that in later years vaguely increased the always strong fascination which I felt for the forest-darkened sepulchre. One man only had perished in the fire. When the last of the hides was buried in this place of shade and stillness, the sad urnful of ashes had come from a distant land, to which the family had repaired when the mansion burned down. No one remains to lay flowers before the granite portal, and few care to brave the depressing shadows which seem to linger strangely about the water-worn stones. I shall never forget the afternoon when first I stumbled upon the half-hidden house of the dead. It was in midsummer, when the alchemy of nature transmutes the sylvan landscape to one vivid and almost homogeneous mass of green— when the senses are well-nigh intoxicated with the surging seas of moist verdure and the subtly indefinable odors of the soil and the vegetation. In such surroundings, the mind loses its perspective. Time and space become trivial and unreal, and echoes of a forgotten prehistoric past beat insistently upon the enthralled consciousness. All day I had been wandering through the mystic groves of the hollow, thinking thoughts I need not discuss, and conversing with things I need not name. In years a child of ten, I had seen and heard many wonders unknown to the throng, and was oddly aged in certain respects. When, upon forcing my way between two savage clumps of briars, I suddenly encountered the entrance of the vault, I had no knowledge of what I had discovered. The dark blocks of granite, the door so curiously ajar, and the funereal carvings above the arch aroused in me no associations of mournful or terrible character. 
Of graves and tombs I knew and imagined much, but had on account of my peculiar temperament been kept from all personal contact with churchyards and cemeteries. The strange stone house on the woodland slope was to me only a source of interest and speculation, and its cold, damp interior, into which I vainly peered through the aperture so tantalizingly left, contained for me no hint of death or decay. But in that instant of curiosity was born the madly unreasoning desire which has brought me to this hell of confinement, spurred on by a voice which must have come from the hideous soul of the forest. I resolved to enter the beckoning gloom in spite of the ponderous chains which barred my passage. In the waning light of day I alternately rattled the rusty impediments with a view to throwing wide the stone door, and essayed to squeeze my slight form through the space already provided, but neither plan met with success. At first curious, I was not frantic, and when in the thickening twilight I returned to my home, I had sworn to the hundred gods of the grove that at any cost I would some day force an entrance to the black, chilly depths that seemed calling out to me. The physician with the iron-gray beard who comes each day to my room once told a visitor that this decision marked the beginnings of a pitiful monomania. But I will leave final judgment to my readers, when they shall have learnt all. The months following my discovery were spent in futile attempts to force the complicated padlock of the slightly open vault, and in carefully guarded inquiries regarding the nature and history of the structure. With the traditionally receptive ears of the small boy, I learned much, though an habitual secretiveness caused me to tell no one of my information or my resolve. It is perhaps worth mentioning that I was not at all surprised or terrified on learning of the nature of the vault. My rather original ideas regarding life and death had caused me to associate the cold clay with the breathing body in a vague fashion, and I felt that the great sinister family of the burned-down mansion was in some way represented within the stone space I sought to explore. Mumbled tales of the weird rites and godless revels of bygone years in the ancient hall gave to me a new and potent interest in the tomb, before whose door... I would sit for hours at a time each day. Once I thrust a candle within the nearly closed entrance, but could see nothing save a flight of damp stone steps leading downward. The odor of the place repelled yet bewitched me. I felt I had known it before, in a past remote beyond all recollection, beyond even my tenancy of the body, I now possess. The year after I first beheld the tomb, I stumbled upon a worm-eaten translation of Plutarch's lives in the book-filled attic of my home. Reading the life of Theseus, I was much impressed by that passage telling of the great stone beneath which the boyish hero was to find his tokens of destiny whenever he should become old enough to lift its enormous weight. 
This legend had the effect of dispelling my keenest impatience to enter the vault, for it made me feel that the time was not yet ripe. Later, I told myself, I should grow to a strength and ingenuity which might enable me to unfasten the heavily chained door with ease. But until then, I would do better by conforming to what seemed the will of fate. Accordingly, my watches by the dank portal became less persistent, and much of my time was spent in other, though equally strange, pursuits. I would sometimes rise very quietly in the night, stealing out to walk in those churchyards and places of burial from which I had been kept by my parents. What I did there I may not say, for I am not now sure of the reality of certain things, but I know that on the day after such a nocturnal ramble I would often astonish those about me with my knowledge of topics almost forgotten for many generations. It was after a night like this that I shocked the community with a queer conceit about the burial of the rich and celebrated Squire Brewster, a maker of local history who was interred in 1711, and whose slate headstone, bearing a graven skull and crossbones, was slowly crumbling to powder. In a moment of childish imagination I vowed not only that the undertaker, Goodman Simpson, had stolen the silver buckled shoes, silken hose, and satin small clothes of the deceased before burial, but that the squire himself, not fully inanimate, had turned twice in his mound-covered coffin on the day of interment. But the idea of entering the tomb never left my thoughts, being indeed stimulated by the unexpected genealogical discovery that my own maternal ancestry possessed at least a slight link with the supposedly extinct family of the Hydes. Last of my paternal race, I was likewise the last of this older and more mysterious line. I began to feel that the tomb was mine, and to look forward with hot eagerness to the time when I might pass within that stone door and down those slimy stone steps in the dark. I now formed the habit of listening very intently at the slightly open portal, choosing my favorite hours of midnight stillness for the odd vigil. By the time I came of age, I had made a small clearing in the thicket before the mold-stained façade of the hillside allowing the surrounding vegetation to encircle and overhang the space like the walls and roof of a sylvan bower. This bower was my temple, the fastened door my shrine, and here I would lie outstretched on the mossy ground, thinking strange thoughts and dreaming of strange dreams. The night of the first revelation was a sultry one, I must have fallen asleep from fatigue, for it was with a distinct sense of awakening that I heard the voices. Of those tones and accents I hesitate to speak, of their quality I will not speak, but I may say that they presented certain uncanny differences in vocabulary, pronunciation, and mode of utterance. Every shade of New England dialect from the uncouth syllables of the Puritan colonists to the precise rhetoric of fifty years ago, seemed represented 
in that shadowy colloquy, though it was only later that I noticed the fact. At the time, indeed, my attention was distracted from this matter by another phenomenon, a phenomenon so fleeting that I could not take oath upon its reality. I barely fancied that, as I awoke, a light had been hurriedly extinguished within the sunken sepulchre. I do not think I was either astounded or panic-stricken, but I know that I was greatly and permanently changed that night. Upon returning home I went with much directness to a rotting chest in the attic, wherein I found the key which, next day, unlocked with ease the barrier I had so long stormed in vain. It was in the soft glow of late afternoon that I first entered the vault on the abandoned slope. A spell was upon me, and my heart leapt with an exultation I can but ill describe. As I closed the door behind me and descended the dripping steps by the light of my lone candle, I seemed to know the way. And though the candle sputtered with the stifling reek of the place, I felt singularly at home in the musty, charnel-house air. Looking about me, I beheld many marble slabs bearing coffins, or the remains of coffins. Some of these were sealed and intact, but others had nearly vanished, leaving the silver handles and plates isolated amidst certain curious heaps of whitish dust. Upon one plate I read the name of Sir Geoffrey Hyde, who had come from Sussex in 1640, and died here a few years later. In a conspicuous alcove was one fairly well-preserved and untenanted casket, adorned with a single name which brought me both a smile and a shudder. An odd impulse caused me to climb upon the broad slab, extinguish my candle, and lie down within the vacant box. In the gray light of dawn I staggered from the vault and locked the chain of the door behind me. I was no longer a young man, though but twenty-one winters had chilled my bodily frame. Early rising villagers who observed my homeward progress looked at me strangely and marveled at the signs of ribald revelry which they saw in one whose life was known to be sober and solitary. I did not appear before my parents till after a long and refreshing sleep. Henceforth, I haunted the tomb each night, seeing, hearing, and doing things I must never reveal. My speech, always susceptible to environmental influences, was the first thing to succumb to the change, and my suddenly acquired archaism of diction was soon remarked upon. Later, a queer boldness and recklessness came into my demeanor till I unconsciously grew to possess the bearing of a man of the world, despite my lifelong seclusion. My formerly silent tongue waxed voluble with the easy grace of a Chesterfield or the godless cynicism of a Rochester. I displayed a peculiar erudition, utterly unlike the fantastic monkish lore over which I had poured in youth, 
and covered the fly-leaves of my books with facile impromptu epigrams which brought up suggestions of Gay, Pryor, and the sprightliest of Augustan wits and rhymesters. One morning at breakfast I came close to disaster by declaiming in palpably licorice accents an effusion of eighteenth-century Bacchanalian mirth, a bit of Georgian playfulness never recorded in a book, which read something like this. Come hither, my lads, with your tankards of ale, and drink to the present before it shall fail. Pile each on your platter a mountain of beef, for tis eating and drinking that bring us relief. So fill up your glass, so life will soon pass. When you're dead, you'll ne'er drink to your king or your lass. Anacreon had a red nose, so they say, but what's a red nose if you're happy and gay? Gad split me, I'd rather be red whilst I'm here than white as a lily and dead half a year. So, Betty, my miss, come give me a kiss. In hell there's no innkeeper's daughter like this. Young Harry, propped up just as straight as he's able, will soon lose his wig and slip under the table, but fill up your goblets and pass em around. Better under the table than under the ground. So revel and chaff as ye thirstily quaff. Under six feet of dirt tis less easy to laugh. The fiend strike me blue, I'm scarce able to walk, and damn me if I can stand upright or talk. Here, landlord, bid Betty to summon a chair, I'll try home for a while, for my wife is not there. So lend me a hand, I'm not able to stand, but I'm gay whilst I linger, on top of the land. About this time I conceived my present fear of fire and thunderstorms previously indifferent to such things. I had now an unspeakable horror of them, and would retire to the innermost recesses of the house whenever the heavens threatened an electrical display. A favorite haunt of mine during the day was the ruined cellar of the mansion that had burned down, and in fancy I would picture the structure as it had been in its prime. On one occasion I startled a villager by leading him confidently to a shallow sub-cellar, of whose existence I seemed to know, in spite of the fact that it had been unseen and forgotten for many generations. At last came that which I had long feared. My parents, alarmed at the altered manner and appearance of their only son, commenced to exert over my movements a kindly espionage which threatened to result in disaster. I had told no one of my visits to the tomb, having guarded my secret purpose with religious zeal since childhood. But now I was forced to exercise care in threading the mazes of the wooded hollow that I might throw off a possible pursuer. My key to the vault I kept suspended from a cord around my neck, its presence known only to me. I never carried out of the sepulchre any of the things I came upon whilst within its walls. One morning, as I emerged from the damp tomb and fastened the chain of the portal with none too steady hand, I beheld in an adjacent thicket the dreaded face of a watcher. Surely the end was near, for my bower was discovered, and the objective of my nocturnal journeys revealed. 
The man did not accost me, so I hastened home in an effort to overhear what he might report to my careworn father. Were my sojourns beyond the chained door about to be proclaimed to the world? Imagine my delighted astonishment on hearing the spy inform my parent in cautious whisper that I had spent the night in the bower outside the tomb. My sleep-filmed eyes fixed upon the crevice where the padlock portal stood ajar. By what miracle had the watcher been thus deluded? I was now convinced that a supernatural agency protected me. Made bold by this heaven-sent circumstance, I began to resume perfect openness in going to the vault, confident that no one could witness my entrance. For a week I tasted to the full the joys of that charnel conviviality which I must not describe. When the thing happened, and I was borne away to this accursed abode of sorrow and monotony, I should not have ventured out that night, for the taint of thunder was in the clouds, and hellish phosphorescence rose from the rank swamp at the bottom of the hollow. The call of the dead, too, was different. Instead of the hillside tomb, it was the charred cellar on the crest of the slope whose presiding demon beckoned to me with unseen fingers. As I emerged from an intervening grove upon the plain before the ruin, I beheld in the misty moonlight a thing I had always vaguely expected. The mansion, gone for a century, once more reared its stately height to the raptured vision, every window ablaze with the splendor of many candles. Up the long drive rolled the coaches of the Boston gentry, whilst on foot came a numerous assemblage of powdered exquisites from the neighboring mansions. With this throng I mingled, though I knew I belonged with the hosts rather than the guests. Inside the hall were music, laughter, and wine on every hand. Several faces I recognized, though I should have known them better had they been shriveled or eaten away by death and decomposition. Amidst a wild and reckless throng, I was the wildest and most abandoned. Gay blasphemy poured in torrents from my lips, and in my shocking sallies I heeded no law of God, man, or nature. Suddenly a peal of thunder, resonant even above the din of the swinish revelry, clave the very roof and laid a hush of fear upon the boisterous company. Red tongues of flame and searing gusts of heat engulfed the house, and the roisterers, struck with terror at the descent of a calamity which seemed to transcend the bounds of unguided nature, fled shrieking into the night. I alone remained, riveted to my seat by a groveling fear which I had never felt before, and then a second horror took possession of my soul. Burnt alive to ashes, my body dispersed by the four winds, I might never lie in the tomb of hides. Was not my coffin prepared for me? Had I not a right to rest till eternity amongst the descendants of Sir Geoffrey Hyde? 
I, I would claim my heritage of death even though my soul goes seeking through the ages for another corporeal tenement to represent it on that vacant slab in the alcove of the vault. Jervis Hyde should never share the sad fate of Palinurus. As the phantom of the burning house faded, I found myself screaming and struggling madly in the arms of two men, one of whom was the spy who had followed me to the tomb. Rain was pouring down in torrents, and upon the southern horizon were flashes of the lightning that had so lately passed over our heads. My father, his face lined with sorrow, stood by as I shouted my demands to be laid within the tomb, frequently admonishing my captors to treat me gently as they could. A blackened circle on the floor of the ruined cellar told of a violent stroke from the heavens and from this spot a group of curious villagers with lanterns were prying a small box of antique workmanship which the thunderbolt had brought to light. Ceasing my futile and now objectless writhing, I watched the spectators as they viewed the treasure trove, and was permitted to share in their discoveries. The box, whose fastenings were broken by the stroke which had unearthed it, contained many papers and objects of value, but I had eyes for one thing alone. It was the porcelain miniature of a young man in a smartly curled bag wig, and bore the initials J.H. The face was such that, as I gazed, I might as well have been studying my mirror. On the following day I was brought to this room with the barred windows, but I have been kept informed of certain things through an aged and simple-minded servitor, for whom I bore a fondness in infancy, and who, like me, loves the churchyard. What I have dared relate of my experiences within the vault has brought me only pitying smiles. My father, who visits me frequently, declares that at no time did I pass the chained portal and swears that the rusted padlock had not been touched for fifty years when he examined it. He even says that all the village knew of my journeys to the tomb, and that I was often watched as I slept in the bower outside the grim façade, my half-open eyes fixed on the crevice that leads to the interior. Against these assertions I have no tangible proof to offer since my key to the padlock was lost in the struggle on that night of horrors. The strange things of the past which I learnt during those nocturnal meetings with the dead he dismisses as the fruits of my lifelong and omnivorous browsing amongst the ancient volumes of the family library. Had it not been for my old servant Hiram, I should have by this time become quite convinced of my madness. But Hiram, loyal to the last, has held faith in me, and has done that which impels me to make public at least a part of my story. A week ago, he burst open the lock, which chains the door of the tomb perpetually ajar, and descended with a lantern into the murky depths. On a slab at an alcove he found an old but empty coffin, whose tarnished plate bears the single word, Jervis. In that coffin, 
and in that vault they have promised me I shall be buried. End of The Tomb by H.P. Lovecraft This recording is in the public domain. Hi, I'm Jesse. Ego some Paul. Oh, no. <laughs> hey, I'm Evan. And we are going to talk about The Tomb by H.P. Lovecraft. This is first published in uh, The Vagrant, a March 1922 fanzine that um, was like five years after it was written, I think. It was 1917, I, I think he wrote it. Yeah, June 1917. Right. And then... Uh, 1922, and then the version I'm holding in my hand is from 1926, first published in Weird Tales, and then I think it was subsequently republished in Weird Tales as well. Um, this is his first adult story, the first story he wrote after um, nine years. He wrote his last story uh, nine years before, and it was... Um, well, there's some that are in there in his early career that are very similar, um, but this one is so polished, so full of themes that resound throughout the rest of his writing, and uh, I think it's my favorite Lovecraft story, which is pretty hard to believe because I like a lot of his stuff. More, it's, it's, uh, it, yeah. it, it's so very Lovecraft, not only in theme and execution and writing, but in personality of the author himself. Mm-hmm. He, he poured himself into the story as Jervas, I think. Yes. Yes. Uh, but is Jervis Hyde or is Jervis <laughs> Jervis Dudley? Yes. <laughs> but that depends on how you how you interpret the events of the story and how supernatural the story really is. Mm. Is the guy crazy or not? A lot of Lovecraft stories from this this period during the the stuff he wrote during the war had that kind of I want to be somewhere else mm. uh, kind of uh, like Solaris is that the one of Polaris is that it's, I think it's called Polaris, Polaris yep. right? yeah. where he's dreaming he's in this great battle right because of course he's, he doesn't fight in World War One but if you read his letters he's uh, you know he's really anxious about this he mm-hmm. he sees World War One as uh, at least in his according to his letters from this time as a a kind of civil war among the Teutonic races mm-hmm. and therefore a great tra- tragedy, but he still wants to fight on the Britain. And he's, he's got these really complex loyalties, which I think he never fully works out. Is no. he new England? Is he trans Anglo American, you know, Anglo identity a transatlantic Anglo identity? Is he part of this Teutonic, uh, broader identity? I think he doesn't quite know and he never quite works it out in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. But in, in in Polaris, he wants to be there fighting. Here is something so horrif- horrific, right? This this idea that he was in these Bacchanalias, it, it's something much more frightening, I think. Um, it's I, not where he wants to be. I, I see it as beautiful, not horrific. <laughs> yeah. I, I, well, I, I think this is... I do too, but I, I'm on the side of those those Bacchanalias and those carnivals. Well, let's talk yeah. about... And I'm not sure that's where Lovecraft is. Yeah, let's talk about that. So uh, there is a, a poem in here, which I, I wanted to say, and I'm not sure it's 100% true now, that it has been published separately. I think he wrote it before he wrote this story. Um, I haven't checked on that, so I could be wrong. 
but it's a quite a long drinking song. And uh, I heard uh, somebody's analysis, maybe it was on YouTube, saying that it, it, it would fit like in as the lyrics of a ale storm, <laughs> a song, uh, which is, you know, hardcore drinking uh, ballads, basically. And the thing is, it's, it's very out of character for Lovecraft, I think, in general. Mm-hmm. And it's also out of character for uh, Jervis Dudley. Very much like that is not him, right? He doesn't go to parties. Um, and so I, I thought, uh, the first analysis on this was in my memory was that this was out of place and it didn't fit in the story. And that was the one flaw in the story. But the closer I read it, I think that that's actually the point of this. This, that he is being, if, if you read it as a supernatural story, not just the story of an insane, insane man or boy. Um, he is being taken over, by, possessed, possessed yeah. by someone who's very unlike him, except in, in you know, facial features and facial features and first name. Yeah, so name. You know, they share some genetic connection, and really, the guy who who is doing this to him, or he's he's subjecting himself to be doing. However, however you want to phrase it, um, they're they're very different kinds of personalities, and that's so. Actually, this shows it as uh, that's kind of the point, right? He's a his parents um, are seeing like if if you try and see this story from any other point of view other than um, Jervis Dudley's, uh, he's in a bad way. Right, and they interrogate yeah. that throughout the story because because he mentions, oh yes, yeah, someone watched him, but oh, he didn't see me go into the tomb. He only he only reported that he saw me in the bower. How mm. lucky for me! And then later, it's like, oh yeah, all the villagers knew you just sat in the bower. You didn't go in the tomb. You just sat in the bower and dreamed all day, and you're you're not in a good way. So yeah, from every external point of view, until the very end, it looks like no, you're you're, you're you've gone uh, around the bend and. Not in a good way. So I'm not quite sure. I'm going to go jump right into the ending here. Mm-hmm. I'm not quite sure what to make of the fact that his name is in that tomb. So was he actually going in there? Is it coincidence? Is it luck? Or are the events all real? What do you <laughs> or think? it's just here, um, humoring. Yes. That, that's all. Or is it, or yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It's just a servant telling him a, telling him a, a a palliative to uh, make him feel better. Mm-hmm. Like, no, no, you actually were in there, and this, your name is actually on that tomb. Don't worry, young master. If I were to film this, I would want Hiram to be black. I don't know. I don't think that there's any evidence for that in the story. Um, but the way he talks about him, he calls him like an. He doesn't call him an idiot, but it, <laughs> it show sort of shows as uh, he looks down. He's he's what is like quite fond of uh, had it not been for my old servant Hiram I should have been by this time quite convinced of my madness but Hiram loyal to the last has held faith in me and has done that which impels me to make public at least part of my story a week ago he burst over right so uh, I think when he calls him a servitor he says you know simple mind oh yeah there it is Uh, he says um, but I have been kept informed on certain things through an aged and simple-minded servitor for whom I bore a fondness in infancy and who, like me, loves the churchyard. So uh, 
I don't know why um, he goes out of his way to kind of uh, insult this guy, except he insults everybody, right, in the mm. very beginning of the story. And to me, it's like this is sort of an archetype. He's like the nanny. If he's the male nanny, and in fact, I was thinking of the the nanny who's absent from the outsider. Another of my favorite stories. Um, you know, we've got the outsider. He doesn't know who raised him, but he sort of gets a sense. Um, and that person who raised <laughs> raised him in his wherever he is um, is absent. So here we've got a little bit about him. And all we know is he's kindly. In fact, everybody in the story is pretty much kindly. His parents, when he he's being spied on, uh, he calls it a kindly espion, espionage, right? So everybody's trying to sort of, I don't know, walk on eggshells for this basically insane boy, um, insanely lonely boy. And I, I I think it's also hilarious. The opening, I think it, the Lovecraft is really good. At sort of making making you think about what what's going on in the heads of the characters. I want to read the opening paragraph. Uh, it's three sentences. Um, in relating the circumstances which have led to my confinement within this refuge for the demented, I am I am aware that my present position will create a natural doubt of the authenticity of my narrative. <laughs> it is a comedy piece, right? But how else can you how else can you escape? Um, how else can you escape saying, you know, I know you might not believe this because I'm in an insane asylum, but on the other hand, <laughs> right, what else? I have to make a disclaimer here. And then the next sentence, which I think is, it's even funnier because he basically says, um, yeah, I'm smarter than all of you. <laughs> he says, uh, it is an unfortunate fact that the bulk of humanity is too limited in its mental vision to weigh with patience and intelligence those isolated phenomena seen and felt only by a psychologically sensitive few, which lie outside its common experience. So I see that him as saying, it's not me who's crazy, it's all of you who are just, you, you don't have good vision. You're, you're just not artists like me. Kind of. He says the same thing in supernatural horror and literature, essentially. Like, you people don't get the, you know, horror. I think he's you're, right. You're not just you're just not sensitive enough. I think he he's right. Uh, this is something that comes up again and again. And that's the whole premise yeah. of the Call of Cthulhu, right? Is that mm-hmm. only the artists uh, are affected and they're affected greatly. Um, and then the, this next sentence, I think, is actually the the next sentence, the finisher for this paragraph opener, is I think this is just truth. Listen to this. Men of broader intellect know that there is no sharp distinction between the real and the unreal, that all things appear as they do only by virtue of the delicate individual physical and mental media through which we are made conscious of them. But the prosaic materialism of the majority condemns as madness the flashes of supersight which penetrate the common veil of obvious empiricism. Again, he at the end there, I think what he's saying is, is uh more bragging <laughs> but the middle part where he says all things appear as they do only by virtue of the delicate individual physical and mental media through which we are made conscious of them that is actually a truth and a truth that most people never think about right it's sort of a 
It's epistemology. It's just yeah, we see things because of the senses that we have, and don't see things that but also that, that exist but our them, senses right? can't detect. It's not right. just the senses. There's a construction that happens within your mind. This is this is like binocular vision, or yeah, well, or like how about I go it, to the refrigerator? And my mom says, uh, "Get the milk out," right? And I look in the refrigerator, and I don't, I just don't see it. Right, it's there, but I just don't see it because I, I I made a mental picture in my mind what the milk will look like, or maybe where it'll be in the fridge, and then it it takes her coming over to the refrigerator and pointing to where it is, and I say, oh yeah, there it is, right? It's not that I'm not looking, it's that I'm not seeing it, and that that uh, I mean this is this is uh probably a bigger issue for people who like have color blindness, right? I. You know, you have that idea that maybe my blue is your red. Well, <laughs> if you if you walk around the world and everybody uh, is talking about reds and greens and they're not red or green for you, um, you might have a little well, more skepticism as to what what's actually going on uh, in the world yeah. out there. Well, yeah, like the wine dark sea, for example, there is you an go. example. I'm, I'm, yeah, I mean, color the names of colors have and what we define as colors has changed over time and some languages don't have words for colors sure. that we do and vice versa. I mean, the word orange didn't exist as a single color until about, about the 17th century anywhere. I mean, it's just considered red or yellow. Mm-hmm. Well, orange, so. orange juice is yellow. <laughs> yeah. Th- there was an article about blue a few years ago. I read mm-hmm. that that was one of these more recent colors, mm-hmm. at least in the West. Mm. It's not yeah, that, some colors yeah. that are just r- really rare, right, in nature that you don't see, and blue is one of them. Um, we we say the sea is blue, and we say the sky is blue, but but the sky is not always blue, and the sea is hmm. not always blue, right? And more importantly, flowers that are blue are relatively rare. I mean, we yeah, can, this comes up in the history of race too, where, uh, for instance, the, this idea of, of Asians as the yellow race. Mm-hmm. The yellow- that's that's relatively recent. Earlier accounts of of Asia just describe them as white. Hmm. Described Asians as white, and and this there's this uh, interesting book by a like a, it's basically a hoax by a guy named Salmatsar, and he just pretended to be Taiwanese, Formosan, and he wrote this like basically a utopian book describing this ideal society. And, and the whole political system of Taiwan. And it's all fiction. It's all made up. But it was taken real. And he was actually touring around. And people believed he was a Taiwanese. But he was just like a white guy. Yeah, that that's fairly common. We had one up here, uh, um, Gray Owl. <laughs> Have you guys heard of Gray Owl? They made a movie no. with Pierce Brosnan um, playing. the uh, Gray Owl was a, um, a British-born uh, man named Archibald Bellaney who chose for himself uh, the name Grey Owl when he took on a First Nations identity. Uh, <laughs> and so he wrote all these books about how, um, about how uh, you know, the native spirituality was very interesting and white people should be interested in it. Um, but really, what's going on is he's a fraud, right? He, mm. But he, whether he knows he's a fraud... <laughs> thinks he's a fraud or believe like there, there I, I think there's a few years ago there was people who um who uh were upset about some lady identifying as black even though she was white because she had cornrows or something it was some twitter thing 
maybe oh, Facebook or whatever those means. <laughs> and it's like, well, the, but the thing is, is a lot of people do like, you know, the culture of a group that they're not a belong or two. Uh, is it cultural appropriation or actual appropriation when you, you, uh, you know, yeah, it is. <laughs> but on the other hand, um, there, as uh, Lovecraft would say, um, uh, all things appear as they do only by virtue of the delicate individual, physical, and mental media through which we are made conscious of them. So if if he is not made conscious of the fact that he's he's putting on a, a, an artificial, th- I mean, we do this all the time, right? You when you you go up to give a speech, you have to give you know put on an artificial personality. Um, and it becomes very natural to do that if you do it a lot. So there, there's something very cool about, and that's, I think that's what resonates with me so much about this story is that he's, he's actually talking about something very real. And this is very much about childhood too. The thing about childhood that's so interesting is that everybody gets one. <laughs> I mean, unless you die early, everybody gets one. Not everybody gets an old age. And you can't remember your old age before you get to it. You can't remember your middle age until you get to it, right? You can't remember being a uh, 28-year-old until you get to be 28. But everybody gets a childhood. So we're always looking back at our childhoods and saying, you know, this might have been an influence on me or I remember this, right? And that whole experience of childhood is incredibly important to a lot of people. And a lot of people ignore it and pretend like it's not there. But Lovecraft is not one who ever does that. He's always looking back at his childhood. And this is, I think, a, a very autobiographical story with with the way he describes his own personality, right? My name is Jervis Dudley, and from earliest childhood I have been a dreamer and a visionary. That's what I want to have put on my business card. <laughs> Jesse Willis, dreamer and visionary. How does he get paid? Not sure. Wealthy beyond the necessity of a commercial life and temperamentally unfitted for the formal studies and social relations of my acquaintances i've dwelt ever in the realms apart from the visible world this is literally true right he had trouble in school trouble relating to people in school he did better outside of school and he was born into a wealthy family i have dwelt ever in the realms apart from the visible world spending my youth and adolescence in ancient and little known books also true of Lovecraft. It's just over and over and over. This is autobiographical. The things that are not autobiographical is him having a dad, right? And him having a um, a tomb that he particularly was obsessed with. I mean, yeah, I mean, because we're, we're not told where this takes place but the idea that there's a tomb going back to 1711 in america kind of points like yeah this has got to be new england so oh, he's well he also has boston right the boston gentry come to the party so they can't oh, be yeah, too far right. away right they're uh, a coach ride away is what i would guess so maybe outside of boston somewhere somewhere in massachusetts somewhere in lovecraft country somewhere near old arkham yeah and uh, i want to um i want to also point out something that Lovecraft is very uh, aware of, and that is um, his own uh, connection to Poe. I think, uh, I, I must have read it somewhere, I think it anyways, I think he must have thought that he was highly, highly connected to Poe as a 
as a sort of a reincarnation of Poe. Um, I, I think whenever you read something and you're very connected to it, you sort of, especially when it's very far in the past, it, it strikes you as like, how can this be, right? How can I be so connected to something so far back? And he had um, a very strong connection with Poe. He's, you know, he visited Poe's grave and he he walked the streets where Poe walked and made poems about that thing. Um, Poe is the inventor of monomania, as far as I'm aware. Um, and a lot of his stories are monomaniacal stories, the telltale heart, right? Um, but the one that I think is very um, connected to this one in the opening line is the black cat. So I'm just going to read the first sentence of the tomb again, and then I'll read the black cat. In relating the circumstances which have led to my confinement within this refuge for the demented, I'm aware that my present position will create a natural doubt of the authenticity of my narrative. That's from the tomb. Here's from the black cat. For the most wild yet most homely narrative which I'm about to pen, I neither expect nor solicit belief. Right. So they're both confession stories in a certain way, right? And um, they're quite different in you know how they play out. But both characters. Are one's quite open. I think Jervis Dudley is quite open, despite the fact that he keeps saying, "I'm not going to talk about this. I'm not going to talk about this." You know, mostly the dryads and stuff. Um, but he also uh, has an he has an open temperament. Whereas the character in the Black Cat, he's either um, insane, psychopathic, or um, he thinks he's cleverer than everybody else, or all three. Because even in that opening sentence, when he says, for the most wild and homely narrative which I am about to pen, right? He could have said, which I'm about to write down, but he says, pen, I neither express, expect nor solicit belief. But actually, what he's trying to do maybe is um, neither expect nor solicit empathy, because that's what that character lacks. Jervis Dudley, I think, is the opposite. He has the exact wrong kind of temperament for a guy who wants to go hang out in a graveyard where there's a ghost who wants to occupy your body and get dead and bring your body back into the graveyard because um the pen which he mentions is later used uh in the story of the black cat to cut out the eye of the black cat of the title right he Uh he uses a pen knife um so it's almost like he's rubbing it in your face whereas this character he thinks he's all smarter than everybody else Jervis Dudley, uh, but actually he is, I think Hiram is not lying to him. I think Hiram, or if he is, he's he's doing it out of kindness. Everybody's sort of walking on eggshells for this poor sort of broken boy. And I think it's just delightful that he's managed to create such a sympathetic character who's basically uh, monomaniacally insane. What, what, what an interesting thing I find about this possession, whether it's a possession for real or whether it's in his mind, is the level of the idiosyncrasies of it. Not, o- not only that uh, that song which comes out of him, which just seems so very unlike our narrator, it's just uh, bursting in. Bur- I mean, that's the kind of song you would hear, like, say, the Green Dragon in mm-hmm. Hobbiton. Mm-hmm. Although it's a little but, more ribald than they would uh, go for. It's It's, well... I've always I always thought that that that's really just 
the glossing over Tolkien. And the, I mean, the hobbits are clearly, this is a side, side note, are clearly a rather, um, rather interested in earthly pleasures, considering how many of the children they all have. Well, not the, I mean, they're, they're, yeah, but only part of the hobbits, right? Because you, Mr. Bilbo Baggins of the Baggins is, they didn't have very many children, but the Tooks, oh my God. That's a sex party <laughs> over there. <laughs> I, I, That's I mean, why they're but, sort of so down on the on the people across the Brandywine is is they're all sex mad over there making so many tooks. But anyway, so so go early early on in the story he talks about the uh, destruction of of the mansion of the midnight storm which destroyed this gloomy mansion. The older inhabitants of the region sometimes speak in hushed and easy voices, alluding to what they call divine wrath and the matter and leaders vaguely increased the always strong fascination I felt for the foreign darkened cycle car. Only one man had perished, had perished in the fire. Then later on, I mean, just after the song he talks about, about this time, I concerned my present fear of fire and thunderstorms. Previously indifferent to such things, I now had an unspeakable horror of them and were tired to the innermost resources of the house whenever the heavens threatened an electrical display. And so, it's, it's, I mean, if you go with the possession theory, then, okay, he's being possessed by by the person killed by the thunderstorm. So that's why he's afraid of fire and thunderstorms. Or if you go with the madness, this thing, he still identifies with this character. Like, oh, I'm going to be afraid of fire and thunderstorms too. Suddenly mm. all, all out of, all out of the, uh, out of nothing. Whereas it hadn't bothered him before. I thought that was a really interesting detail that this is, that it's just a complicated overlay of a new personality on him. That's got all these different facets. It's not just one, single strand but a whole different personality with all different uh parts to it it's like when you move to a new town right you 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 can remake your character as a uh <laughs> i was gonna say dungeons dragon campaign but no. <laughs> uh, you know you know when you move to a new town and you, you're the new kid in school you don't have to be the old kid you were at the old school you can be some other right. kid. And this okay. is the goth kid. <laughs> but he's but, maybe trying to turn into somebody else other than, you know, have the black hair and the black clothes and the white makeup and all that stuff now. But I think you're imposing a bit too much of, of the libertine on Lovecraft. I think in these mind-switching stories, mm -hmm. there's a, the horror is you lose control over yourself and who you are. And that really terrified, you know, pretty much all of them in Beyond the Wall and a Wall of Sleep, mm, in Doom, in yeah. Shadow, in Shadow of Time. It's it's a horrific thing to lose control. And I, did any of you think that this, on some level, is a story about adolescence, yeah, right? Like absolutely. someone with a certain upbringing who has this idea of what the proper life for him is, you know, and he gets hit with all these desires at a certain age. And there's oh, this anxiety yeah. over over you know what he would want to be when he closes his eyes at night his mind's in one place and then you know but he can't really admit that so he kind of constructs this 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 image but there, there's something really terrifying it's it's not the mask it's he's uh, not that, terrified though that's the that's what's so striking is no, that, lovecraft is i think oh, love oh yes uh, yes I, yes lovecraft is horrified of this um and this is a straight up bacchanali it's it's i don't see it uh the the Anything like what the hobbits were doing. I mean, maybe the Tooks, who knows? But yeah, in, in the, uh, the, in, a blasphemy poured in torrents from my lips, and the shocking sallies. I heed no law of God, man, or nature. I want to stop there and say, reread Castro's confession in Call of Cthulhu, 
And why do why does he support the Cthulhu movement cult? It's for that same reason. Mm. It's because it breaks down earthly laws and allows kind of an absolute freedom. Mm-hmm. I could find that that exact quote. We can go back to Castro. I, Castro was the guy they caught in the New Orleans. Yeah, right. The cultists. Okay, suddenly a peal of thunder resonant even above the din of the swinish revel, revelry clave at the very roof and, and laid a hush on the fear of the boisterous company. And then the fire fire begins. But, uh, yeah, this is, um, this is the Bacchanalia. Um, and it's pretty perverse, I think. Yeah, you know, uh, um, he, he wants to go home because his wife's not there. Right? Yeah. <laughs> he is... He is a mo- he's a monster character, and um, the, the thing is, is this is an aspect of Lovecraft, right? I'm pretty sure he wrote this separately, and then he sort of incorporated it into the story. Um, and if that's the case, you know, I mean, he he's playful, but here it's it it is playful too, but it's playful in a way that you would never normally think of Lovecraft as being playful. He's very restrained generally. Um, and this is, but he, this is him exercising that. And, and what's so cool is I think that that is echoed early on in the story. Um, th- this is in the second uh, paragraph. Um, I do not think that what I read in these books or saw in these fields and groves was exactly what other boys read and saw there. But of this, I must say little since detailed speech would but confirm the cruel slanders upon my intellect not my character, right, but upon my intellect, which I sometimes overhear from the whispers of the stealthy attendants around me. It is sufficient for me to relate events without analyzing causes. He actually does this again and again in the story. He starts to tell uh, stuff that's unrelated to the, the tomb, which is his subject, right? Um, he says there's all sorts of other stuff going on there, right, it, it, that, that's going on in the um, in the grove. I'm mm-hmm. uh, uh, sorry, the uh, hollow. And uh, here's I'm going to read. This is the third paragraph. Uh, I have said that I dwelt apart from the visible world, but I have not said that I dwelt alone. This no human creature may do. For lacking the fellowship of the living, he inevitably draws upon the companionship of things that are not, not living, or are no longer living. So he's basically saying, yeah, I was so lonely. <laughs> Nobody else wanted to play my games. Um, I was so socially awkward that uh, I would walk around talking to myself, talking to the trees, talking to the rocks, and also to the people who lived in the graves. And, in fact, this story was um, uh, inspired by Lovecraft going out for a walk with one of his aunts. Um, and they saw a tomb, or a tombstone, of a, a 17th century gentleman. And it struck him that uh, he couldn't, because he he always thought of himself as a man out of time, somebody who was born two centuries too late. Um, he would look at the grave. Uh, he was thinking of, how come I can't talk to that guy? And then he immediately went home. After the walk, he started writing this story. Um, and then this next part is pretty amazing, because it, it hints... This is what I love about Lovecraft. He hints so much, and he de- lets us do all the imagining. Close by my home there lies a singular wooded hollow, in whose twilight deeps I spent most of my time reading, thinking, and dreaming. And then this next part is so good, because it hints as to what this other guy's story... He's got a whole other story going on, other than he's obsessed with uh, you know, going and lying down in a tomb. Uh, 
It says, down in its moss-covered slopes, my first steps of infancy were taken. So when he was a child, he walked down into this hollow. And just, you know, as almost a toddler here. And around its grotesquely gnarled oak trees, my first fancies of boyhood were woven. Well did I come to know the presiding dryads of those trees, and often have I watched their wild dances, their bacchanalia almost, right? In the struggling yeah. beams of the waning moon. But of these things, I must not now speak. I will... He, actually, whenever, whenever I read that, I think of Great God Pan. Yes. Uh, Makem, where there's that... The, the scenes where the boy goes into the woods. It's it's in the early part of the, the story, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and something horrible, horrific happens. Right? He's essentially raped by this Man. Uh, <laughs> creature, right? Yeah. Um, Here, it, it, there's Yeah, but that, that's kind female. of the the, 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 like the dryads and the nymphs and stuff in the woods. It's, it's that motif that runs throughout Great God Pan, especially that first... Um, part and the fancies uh-huh. right so fancy can work two ways one is you know uh, it's my imagination right i fancy that i will be a king one day right um and then the other is like th- those uh-huh. that's how you feel about a girl you got a crush on you know you fancy her <laughs> and uh, that's what's going on is he sees these trees and he makes of them friends right some like so when we get to that point where the uh, uh, another way to tell this story is from the PI's detective, uh, from the private detective's perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I get uh, when I got to this point in the story, uh, were my sojourns beyond that chain door about to be proclaimed to the world? Imagine my delighted asto- delighted astonishment on hearing the spy inform my parents in a cautious whisper that I had spent the night in the bower outside the tomb. When I mm-hmm. when I first read this, I'm like. What did is the is the uh, private detective trying to like make it make it easier for the parents because it'd be too creepy, or <laughs> or is and then I put what question mark and exclamation point he doesn't know or he's just he, he we're finding out that actually he doesn't have her actually go in there when he loses right. the key, um the key is a dream key right. Another, uh, which is a whole nother story uh, by Lovecraft, right? He's uh, this is actually a dreamland story in a certain sense because he never act. There's a very way good way of reading this is is he never actually goes into that tomb. Oh, well, 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 maybe, maybe, maybe. Uh, I mean, if you want, I mean, because there's plenty of dreamland stories by Lovecraft. I mean, maybe he's gone. He's gone into the Dreamlands version yes, of the absolutely. tomb, and and that that would explain. But he's never that, physically gone in there, right? No, but but it would explain why he know why why there's a tomb with his with his ancestor's name on it that matches his. That how we would know that mm-hmm. because he actually it's I astral mean, projection so, is the, is the old fashioned way of of saying it. But right. he's 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 definitely he dreaming projected the into the tomb. Yeah, right. And that that would explain a lot of what he sees. That this is really a dream. This is really, yes, but abutting against Dreamland stories rather than anything else. So no, he hasn't going into get. He's not crazy, but no, he's really just a dreamer. I and like that's that. what exactly what he says right at the beginning. Right, uh, he's he saw things that other boys didn't see in the in the woods, but also in the books. And I think that that's true too. 
you can read a story. Like I have students who read a story and then it does nothing for them, right? And for me, it also it's like a bolt of lightning uh, hitting me. So that's uh, when he says here, by what miracle had the watcher been thus deluded? So he, he doesn't even consider the possibility because we all see things through the media that we have and the senses that we have. Um, to him, it was absolutely as real as, you know, looking at some object that looks red and, you know, it's red. There's no question of it, right? Well, yeah, which reminds me of uh, those, I mean, that meme that comes out every so often, what color is this dress? And different sure. people mm-hmm. see it different colors because of just, just alternating perceptions. Mm-hmm. I was now and nobody's right, nobody's wrong. And then he says, I was now convinced that a supernatural agency protected me. So he th- he he calls it a miracle, right? That uh, that he wasn't found out. Um and in a way, you could read this as well that Jervis uh Hyde is a malevolent force who literally is called out in uh, reference at the very beginning of the story. Um, it's Sebedis uh, ut saltum placidus in morte quiescum, right? And it says from Virgil. So yep. I looked this up. I did the translation. Um, and the translation is from, well, it's a quote from book six of the Aeneid, which I read very long time ago. Um, when Aeneas descends into hell on this, on the, our side of the river Styx, he meets his old helmsman, Pelernus, who was washed overboard and killed um, and not buried. Um, and then it says, the uh, dextrum misero et tesum mi tole per undas sebedus ut saltum placidus in morte quiescum. So it has part of the quote in, in what, in there, and it translates to, Help a poor fellow take me over the water with you. Give a dead man at least a place to rest in. So that's what the quote means, right? Give a dead uh-huh. man at least a quote a place to rest in. Uh-huh. And this character, Placidus, um, sorry, <laughs> Placidus, Polernus, uh, he's uh, he's unquiet dead. Right, that's the quiescum, right? He wants because oh, he got washed overboard. Yeah. Well, he yeah, he burned in that house fire, and he and and his ashes were not uh, placed in the tomb of his ancestors. So he has a desire to be buried in there. Um, he's a ghost, right? <laughs> Essentially, um, one way of looking at it is he's a ghost, but he's only he only wants his own body to be there. Well, luckily, there's this guy who looks exactly like him, Jervis Jervis uh, Dudley who, you know, is very sensitive. <laughs> a couple centuries later, he's, he's just really into this tomb and sort of gets possessed. And then he he's going to get what he wants in the end, assuming not everybody's lying to him and his parents aren't, you know, assuming he, you know, everybody doesn't lie to him and and he's not going to, he's going to get buried in the wrong place. He's going to get exactly what he wants, right? In that coffin and in that vault, they have promised me I shall be buried. It's really all that he wanted. 
so it's kind of beautiful, kind of, except it's also. But it's the Kerwin story from Charles Dexter Ward, but right. maybe less, less, less vicious. Except he wants to be alive. <laughs> yeah, Kerwin wants to live. This guy, um, but I, I need to jump in here with one of Lovecraft's letters mm-hmm. um, because it, it ties to what you were just saying here and the story. I think um, so. It's November 1927 to Dwyer Bernard Austin Dwyer, and he talks about Rome first and. He says, Rome, as I think I have said, has always exercised the most peculiar, potent effect on my imagination, forming a second fatherland to which all my sense of loyalty, perspective, affection, pride, and personal identity reverts whenever I think back to myself in the ancient world. Mm-hmm. Right? And then he goes on for a while, and he's always flipping back between kind of the Roman civilization and then like the Druids and the kind of the more religious aspects of, of Roman world. And then there's the tension between the Roman Empire and like the barbarian invaders. So that's like a very Lovecraftian view of history. Well, right? Yeah, the, the barbarians are going to come in and wash away this great civilization. But here's where I want to jump to. This is a huge paragraph. It goes on for like two pages. But he says this. I am also quite often a private citizen or civil official when he's dreaming of himself as a Roman. A private citizen or civil official either in Rome or some Italian municipum or in one of the towns or the western provinces. These dreams were most numerous in 1905 and 1906, but have recurred off and on since then. The recent one was undoubtedly the joint product of, A, my rereading of the Aeonid, and my usual thrill of Anchises' prophecy of the future of Roman glory, and B, the halloween season. Mm-hmm. He, he's, he writes it that way, halloween season, as impressed upon me by the echoes of festivals held elsewhere in the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Huh. So, the I don't know, that made me think of the... This this bacchanalia. Well, and, and that's what the, right. He's got some. He's got a suspicion of any kind of festival or gathering that has some kind of religious connotation. He he really has a deep distrust of that. Even at the Halloween seems to have freaked him out here. But uh, Halloween is, of course, this, the return of the spirits, right? Yeah. The uh, kids coming to the door, knock knock. Um, <laughs> you know, pu- uh, you know, you have to placate the spirits. And uh, this this little ten, he's ten when he first starts, you know, hanging out all night beside this tomb. Um, it, it very influ, you know, it could be very influential, especially if you're as sympathetic and uh, you know a basket of uh, emptiness that needs to be filled. This little boy with no friends and no, I'm talking not Lovecraft now. I'm talking Jervis Dudley. Right, he's out in the woods. He's as he says. Um, what he read in those books and saw in those fields and groves was not exactly what other boys saw and read there. So when when we read Roman history, we can see uh, how connected we are to them in a certain way sometimes and, and very disconnected in other, other times in other ways. But if you read like a um, – if you read uh, not sort of a formal history but when people are talking about themselves um, and their life – in ancient Roman documents, they're just people. They're exactly yeah, like, like Cicero. Us. Yeah, Cicero. Cicero's letters. Or he's, just a, he's just a dude. Marcus Aurelius, sort of. You know, he he's he's got problems. <laughs> he's trying <laughs> to solve them. Um, his son's not so good. <laughs> he's worried about Spoiler. that. <laughs> um, I wanted also. To, I, I I mentioned Hiram, uh, who I thought would. If I was filming this, he should be a black servant. I, not because I'm racist, but because I think that that's implicit in the story. Um, 
Uh, Hiram is an interesting name. Uh, I I guess it sounds uh, biblical, right? And it is biblical. He was a buddy of Solomon, uh, the original uh, Hiram. And uh, interestingly, there is a tomb of Solomon, uh, not Solomon, of Hiram. So it says, uh, five miles east of the city of Tyre is an ancient monument called by the natives uh, the comb or tomb of Hiram. Uh, the tradition of the king of Tyre was that he was interred rests only in the authority of the natives. It bears about it an unmistakable mark of extreme antiquity. And and there's a picture of it, and it, it's basically a tomb. Just piled, piled stones, and it, I'm sure, given how well-read Lovecraft was, he would have be, been well aware of this. Because it's not nothing that, you know, we... We don't. I don't think there is a tomb of Solomon, as far as I'm. I'm aware. We've got King, King Solomon's Mines is a fictional place. Um, a lot of these ancient biblical characters. And it's probably not really uh, his tomb, but I think Lovecraft would have been aware um, of uh, of this this tomb, and it's sort of what he's known for. Um, so it's just a little call out there. So there's a lot of little call outs. In fact. Did you guys note the book, the the only book that I think ever gets mentioned in the whole story? Because Lovecraft is very much into, you know, textual references. Um, <clears throat> I believe the uh, Arkham Insiders podcast, the German version of uh, of uh, the H.P. Lovecraft literary podcast. Um, it's Plutarch's kind of, Lives. Yes, mm. it's Plutarch's Lives. And Plutarch's Lives is the same book that Frankenstein reads. One of three books that Frankenstein, uh, Frankenstein's monster reads, right? I did not remember yeah. that. Yes. So listen to this. The year after I first beheld the tomb, I stumbled upon a worm-eaten translation of Plutarch's Lives in the book-filled attic of my home. I believe this is probably a true story. And then he says, Reading the life of Theseus, I was much impressed by the passage telling of the great stone beneath which the boyish hero was to find his tokens of destiny, whether he should become old enough to lift it, uh, its enormous, when he should become old enough to lift its enormous weight. This legend had a f- the effect of dispelling my keenest impatience to enter the vault, for it made me feel that my the time was not yet ripe. Later I told myself I should grow to a strength and ingenuity which might enable me to unfasten the heavy chain door with ease. But until that then I would do better by conforming to what seemed the will of fate. Now, um, this is important because he actually does learn to do this, but he doesn't do it with muscles. He does it with dream, right? He can unlock things with his dreams. So he, he, he learns in his, in his vigils that there is a box in the attic, right? which is where he also found this book and this story. There's a box in the attic that contains the key. And he goes to that key, puts it around his neck, goes to the goes to the um, tomb and unlocks the, the padlock to the, the tomb. This is entirely plausible at the time in the story, but it's actually um, predicted by this, this reference to Plutarch's lives in the story of Theseus. Um, and I want to point out that he's 11 years old at the time he reads Plutarch's Lives, because he says he was 10 earlier, and he says the year after. So he's an 11-year-old boy reading uh, Plutarch's Lives, which is pretty young <laughs> for it. 
Um, and then, and uh, that's this is so well put together this story, right? Just so much detail that you wouldn't notice if you're just doing it lightly. But I've read this dozens of times, I think now, or at least a dozen I, times. I, 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 I want to point out something and also clarify something for readers who are going to go, "What the heck is the deal with Plutarch's lives?" And a connection, an additional layered connection with the story. Mm-hmm. For those readers who don't know or don't want to actually go go to the Googles. Plutarch's lives, or, or more properly, Plutarch's parallel lives to the noble mm. Greek and Romans, is basically set up as he basically compares Greek heroic and important Greek and noble lives together side by side throughout the book. He take he takes a Roman, he takes a Greek, and kind of compares and contrasts the two throughout the books. I forget which one Theseus gets uh, compared with in the actual in the actual book. I could probably find that out. But my my point is, this this story in itself is also a Plutarch's lives because we're paralleling our narrator with with mm-hmm. his early, his 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 earlier self, mm-hmm. and how how is how how their lives wind up converging, especially when he starts taking on the uh, the aspects of his previous self. And I just looked it up. Theseus gets paired with Romulus, so mm, that, interesting. So, so yep. Yeah, so that that yeah. that that clearly was. Well, Plutarch's part to show like Romulus was great. He was so great. I'm going to pair him with one of the greatest uh, Greek uh, warriors of all time, sort of thing. So yeah, so that was actually that was actually probably meant as you know a bit of like pro-Roman uh, patriotism there. I also want to point out that um, in in Frankenstein, he actually reads Plutarch's lives by listening to it through a keyhole, right, or a, a crack in the wall. While this family, so he's being spied on, or he's spying on uh, the family that he's learning his his books from, <laughs> um, and they're reading it aloud. And then he, uh, and in this story, um, he actually gets spied on, right, by that private detective at uh, at one point. And so there's this, like, he he is in essence like. And that's a lot of what's going on in Frankenstein is this idea of the blank slate, right? You you mm-hmm. you create a creature that has no no personality at all, and if you abuse it, then it makes a monster, right? And if you if you enrich it by reading it wonderful stories, it makes it um, I don't know uh, ivory tower, <laughs> and and so that's what's funny about. Of the Frankenstein creature is that he is a mix, right? He's he's both a monster and uh, a well-spoken gentleman. <laughs> he gets all the best speeches in the book, right? So I I don't think that that's an ac- an accident necessarily, um, but they're not exactly parallel either this this story and Frankenstein because the the effect here is. Lovecraft doesn't generally um, go around having his characters murder everybody. He, he generally they're they're sort of self harmers, and that's what's going on here. This is self harm story. The parents are worried that he's you know he's gonna be he's all goth now. He's covered in the white makeup. He's wearing the black beret and um not, doesn't have any friends. Black black nail polish. <laughs> I can't worry about this boy. Um, they think he's gonna. I mean, he literally wants to go lie down in a tomb. He wants to die, right? There's something. There's something really creepy and good about that part. I don't really like it. 
What do you think, uh, Evan? Oh, I think it's a great story. But, um, yeah, I, I have to latch on to the, the, the festivities that he's experiencing. I, I mean, in a sense, I, I don't really care so much as a reader whether they really took place or not. Because I'm interested in really trying to understand Lovecraft's, and this is where I am in my reading of Lovecraft, I'm trying to understand really his view of history and his view particularly of, of the Atlantic and of like empires and civilization and, and race. So I'm thinking about these things So when I read this. So I, I really have to kind of zero in on this, on this, this Bacchanalia thing because it's... It's so much by which you mean, like the Georgian playfulness is what he calls it, right? Yeah, but I think for Lovecraft, this is a really a horrific thing, and it's it's wherever this shows up in his work, and you got to look at it kind of across his his career. It's presented as very very bad. Um, The best example is Call of Cthulhu, right? Mm -hmm. Where we get again back to, to go back to Castro. I found the the passage here. Okay. So they arrest this guy in Louisiana, right? A, a, a cultist, essentially. A Cthulhu cultist. Um, this is in that, that story of the grass, right? The mm-hmm. guy telling the story. And here's what Castro witnesses to, uh, to the detectives. Then those first men formed a cult around small idols, which the great ones showed them. Idols brought in dim airs from dark scars. The cult would never die till the stars came right again. And the secret priest would take great Cthulhu from his tomb to revive his subjects and resume his rule of earth. The time would be known, easy to know, for then mankind would become, as the great old ones, free and wild and beyond good and evil, with Mm -hmm. laws and morals thrown aside, and all men shouting and killing and reveling in joy. Then the liberated old ones would teach them new ways to shout and kill and revel and enjoy themselves, and all the earth would flame with a holocaust of ecstasy and freedom. Meanwhile, the cult, by appropriate rights, must keep alive the memory of those ancient ways and shadow forth the prophecy of their return. So Lovecraft here is linking the freedom with this degeneration and, and evil, right? Killing, murdering, right? But it's latched to freedom. And you see that again and again. When you, if, you, if you ever dive into his letters, dive into Lovecraft's letters, it's, it's quite an adventure, but he's terrified of, of barbarism, the frontier. He's terrified of, of freedom in general. He, he goes on long rants that go on for pages and pages <laughs> about freedom. It's just being one of the worst things that can happen to civilization. And it's going to bring us all down. It, you know, his letters to Howard, which I have the two volumes of his letters, the letters between H.P. Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard. Mm-hmm. And they go on, to, they, they, they have this argument for years, literally, about civilization versus barbarism and it, it kind of almost drives Howard nuts you know <laughs> trying to talk to Lovecraft about like even something like the Texas frontier without Lovecraft going on about like the Romans and, <laughs> and, talking past and Alexandrian you know chaos he, he I forget the exact quote but somewhere he talks about like the Alexandrian like the disaster of the Alexandrian hybridity hybrid society of, of the empires of Alexander the Great <clears throat> You know, the idea that these cultures mix and, and then he'll do the same thing on interracial marriage and everything. And it's and I think this festivity, this kind of cultic festivity that we see here, just a glimpse of it, t- 
ties to so much of what Lovecraft thinks about throughout his whole life until the end of his life, really. And what fascinates me, because I'm on the other side of this whole debate, I, I find in the witches and the, the, the maroon communities of runaway slaves, the pirates, mm. the jazz clubs, and all the, the you know, the, the zoot suitors, whatever it is, kind of the expression of freedom, something to, to celebrate. Mm-hmm. But for, for Lovecraft, it's, you know, it's what we have to, like, hold the wall against. Yeah, definitely he would support building a wall. <laughs> around oh, God, he, yes, he'd be so he'd be so for a wall. It's yeah, it's, it's kind of sickening. And I, I want I want to read the, this is uh, I think kind of related and also it's wonderful. Uh, this is on page one twenty two of the uh, uh, Weird Tales version. Um, mm-hmm. For a week, I tasted to the full uh, to the full the joys of that charnel conviviality. <laughs> so he's turning. Like lying down in a tomb, maybe rubbing up against the bones of of his ancestors <laughs> <laughs> into a bacchanalia, uh, which I must not describe. Oh, yeah, he says, joys of that charnel conviviality, which I must not describe. <laughs> Why not? When the thing happened. <laughs> what is this thing? The thing. <laughs> <laughs> and I was born away to this accursed abode of sorrow and monotony. Now, I, I, I must tell you guys, if you do nothing before you die... You, you absolutely must do uh, this, which is read The Love Dead uh, by Lovecraft and C.M. Eddie Jr. Uh, it's very similar to this, um, but also very different um, because it's a complete comedy piece as far as I can tell. And it is so funny because it's basically all the stuff that um, he's doing in this tomb, except... He's also a serial killer, and he's making more dead bodies, and he's just rubbing himself all up against all these corpses, and he thinks it's the greatest thing ever, and can't understand, um, uh, you know. But there's this scene where he suddenly has that change, where he decides that that's his that's his bent, and it's just the funniest thing to read. Um, so Lovecraft has the greatest sense of humor. It's so funny. Um, here, the next paragraph is slightly different. Uh, I should not have ventured out that night, for that taint of thunder was in the clouds of the hellish phosphorescent rose, that rank swamp at the bottom of the hollow. Notice it's like turning yucky again, instead of being nice. The call of the dead, too, was mm-hmm. different. Instead of the hillside tomb, it was the charred cellar of the crest of that slope whose presiding demons. That's the second time the word came up, right? Presiding dryads, now we've got presiding demon beckon me to me with unseen fingers as i emerged from this intervening grove upon the plain before the ruin i beheld in the misty moonlight a thing that i had was always vaguely that i had always vaguely expected the mansion gone for a century once more reared its stately height to the raptured vision every window ablaze with the splendor of many candles up the long drive, the rolled coach uh, ro- drive rolled the coaches of the Boston gentry, while whilst on foot came the numerous assemblage of powdered exquisites from the neighboring mansions. Now, powder is actually something that shows up again in the story in the tomb, right? There's uh, the powdered bodies basically, and powder or ash, right, is also important in that other um, uh, Charles Dexter Ward story. <clears throat> but here it's powdered like powdered faces and powdered wigs probably um uh with the with this throng and he's used that word a couple times in here too with this throng i mingled 
though I knew I belonged with the hosts rather than with the guests. Inside the hall were music, laughter, and wine on every hand. Several faces I recognized, though I should have known them better had they been shriveled or eaten away by death and decomposition. Wow, he knows their their skulls so well he can reconstruct their faces in his mind. Or maybe they just look like his mom and dad and his uncle and his brother. Except he doesn't have a brother. Admitst a wild and reckless throng, there it is again, I was the wildest and most abandoned. Gay blasphemy poured in torrents from my lips, and in shocking sallies I needed no law of God, man, or nature. So you're right, it is all about like him being out of control, um, and that mm-hmm. out of control is struck by lightning. The only person killed at the party is uh, Jervis, Jervis uh, Hyde, right? And their their house is struck down. There's a lightning bolt at the beginning of the story of Frankenstein as well that burns the house down. Oh, does it burn the house down? Maybe it burns the breaks the tree. Yeah. yeah. And I want to add here that Lovecraft seemed to believe that these things took place in it and that they were real movements. So it, again, now this book was written after the tomb was written, but about the time that the tomb was published, this book came out and throughout his letters, he recommends people to read it. It's called the witch cult in Western Europe mm. by Margaret Murray. Have you read this? No, I've heard of it. No, it's no. influential, but yeah, Lovecraft referenced it all the time. Now the key thing about this book and, and why it's still controversial among people who study witchcraft today, even though it's not really taken seriously as history, it's kind of interesting historiographically, like in the view of this, is Murray's point where that witch cults were real, right? And that they were active and that they kind of evolved from, I think, like the Druids and these Clathonic religions um, from the pre, like, Ro- like even the pre-Roman times. And they're, so they're like pagan remnants in Christian Europe and... So they're real things, and as I, I'm convinced, Lovecraft thought that these these types of organizations engaged in these things were were quite active, mm-hmm. right? And I, that's one piece of evidence of that. But um, and, and to a degree, I think they maybe were. I, I mentioned I sent you guys this book, um, Brian D. Palmer, a historian, Cultures of Darkness, Night Travels, and the History of Transgression which is actually one of my favorite books, but he goes into detail, starting with peasants all the way up to, you know, the contemporary uh, world and looks at these kind of subcultures throughout and subcultures that gravitate towards night mm. and things like carnival and the, like the Venetian masquerades mm. and secret societies, uh, pirates and all these things. So you've got this idea of this cultural night that these movements are associated with. And they're all kind of anti-capitalist and anti-institutional hmm. and, and kind of a site of resistance, cultural resistance to uh, Day, which is in his work kind of the, the realm of capital and business hmm. and, and the state. And so resistance then comes out at night. Um, he's even got a wonderful chapter about how the state actually spent all this money actually trying to illuminate night in some of these modern cities, sure. you know, to actually bring the light to to the darkness um yeah and halloween so it's kind of inverted that, right? this, this yeah but you know lovecraft's totally on the side of the state here and the powers that be suppressing it um i was rereading uh just in response to this livy's account of the bacchanalias so livy is a roman historian who is 
he's kind of with the August, the Claudian Augustan dynasty, like right. He, he grew up during the civil war and he's kind of right there with Augustus. So, and, and, and if you remember your Roman history, Augustus brought in this kind of moral reform mm-hmm. along with his. Oh, oh, along with any, yeah. Along with ending the civil war. So Libby was very much like, I don't want to go back to the civil wars. I'm with Augustus. Yeah. He, yeah, one of the laws whole, he made was men have to get married. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but there's a whole Augustus family Libby. values. I mean, Livy's kind of propaganda for the empire and for what Augustus is doing, uh, making everything from before look bad. Mm-hmm. But he's got a whole chapter here on the Bacchanalias, and it's actually a fascinating read. I didn't get to review the whole thing, but um, it sounds like Lovecraft could have wrote this. But at first they were confined to women. No male was admitted, and they had to stay days in the year in which persons were initiated during the daytime, and matrons were chosen to act as priestesses. Pakula Ania, a campion when she was a priestess, made a complete change as though by divine uh, montation. Okay, let me jump ahead here. Um, oh, yeah. So at the same time, she made the rite a nocturnal one instead of three days in the year, celebrated five times a month. When once the mysteries have assumed this promiscuous character, the men were mingled with women and all the license of nocturnal orgies. There was no crime, no deed of shame wanting. More uncleanliness was wrought by men by, by men with men than with women. Whoever would not submit to defilement or shrank from violating others was sacrificed as a victim. Wow. And he goes on like this for, for quite a while. And that just, that's kind of, I'm reminded of Castro. I mean, mm. that's this kind of the freedom, but the total breakdown of, of law and order mm-hmm. and moral law. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a real um, concern that, that it, it runs throughout Western Europe and, and the United States very, you know, the... the I think they always say Republicans are about small government, but it, they, they want to get into your bedroom and prevent you from having uh, put things in certain holes and with the wrong kind of genders and has to be under certain – like there's all sorts of concern that people are going to be morally transgressive and everything's going to go to hell, right? And 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 that's the I think there was a yeah there was some YouTube idiot who <laughs> the the reason people are having problems is in society it's not economic issues and government policy it's moral decline <laughs> it's, yeah it's always moral decline right it, it, it's not it's not like government policies and markets being uh you know <laughs> twisted the wrong way um and Lovecraft is not um not great at economics or politics i don't think but he is really sensitive i think to to night um right he was always up at night doing his astronomy going in his night walks uh solitarily writing right um yeah he could be convivial and talk about books with people but um he's he's so so this is one of the few stories that i don't think is directly inspired by a dream and yet dreams are obviously central to the story. He literally went on a walk and saw a tomb and thought about it and went went a home and wrote the story. It wasn't inspired by a dream. But what does he do? He has the boy get into the tomb through dream. It's it's ultimately connected. And and that sort of half dream state that you you're in after especially after sleep, I find, rather than before sleep. Although that I'm much more sensitive to it when I'm I'm waking up rather than when I'm falling asleep. Is super super um, creative and imagination connected. It's it's full of fancies. 
I, there's nothing about this story I don't like anymore. I used to not like the the um the the drinking party and all that stuff, but I think I think it really fits in. I thought it was I thought it didn't fit in, but I think it fits in completely because it makes the the whole character of this this boy in question like did is there a victory here or is it a tragedy? It's a tragedy, my opinion. He's he's, he's stuck in the same asylum that way. I mean, he's going to spend years in that barred room because his family think he's he's gone off around the end, around the bend. And whether whether or not he actually got in there, or he dreamed, or he used the power of dream to get in there, or he was possessed by a ghost in there, I prefer those explanations to oh he's just he's just he's just out of his mind. I prefer there'd be a supernatural explanation to just. But he's the only one that can see it, and he's the only one that really can connect to it. But he's but he's now severed from that connection to the tomb because he's trapped in this room, mm-hmm. and there's no prospect of him ever getting out until he dies. That's not that's that's not that's not a triumph. That's tragedy. <laughs> what do you think, Kevin? Um, I I don't know. I I think if if he's mad, then he's, it, certainly it's a triumph, right? If you're focused on the institutional realities of the existence he's going to live, that's a tragedy. Mm. Yeah, I, I mean, I've just been reading "We Can Build You" by Philip K. Dick, mm-hmm. and it's it's actually a, a story about a, a man who figures he's insane and spends and in, in, ends up in an institution. And and he that that narrator of that story is is com- convinced of his he gets, he wins at the end, but it's all a delusion. <laughs> Um, so in that sense, um, yeah, I mean, he, he has this connection with his ancestors and he lives out this experience that, and he's going to live and and then die and get buried in the place that he wants to be buried. Yeah. There's a, some philosophy, uh, line that goes, um, a being towards death, right? (laughs) Um, uh, Heidegger. Yeah, uh, Eric Rabkin always accuses me of being well accuses uh, maybe uh, labels me a fanatophilic, right? I've got a I've got a couple of skulls on my desk. Um, you know they're not human skulls. But, no bones about it. Yeah, exactly. It's it's like I'm very interested in it, and and Lovecraft is interested in it in a very almost beautiful way, even though it's kind of creepy. Um, I want to read the um. I want to read the opening two paragraphs of uh, the Love Dead because it it it's so funny. It never it I, I never knew that Lovecraft's uh, comedy could be so so amazing. And it's it's right on topic with this, right? With uh, it's a guy who he just likes hanging out with dead people a little bit too much. Guess <laughs> that's what's going on in in the tomb. Is he just he doesn't have any friends, and so he goes other than you know uh, cavorting with dryads or watching them dance. Uh, basically, he reads books and goes and uh, and lies down with his ancestors. Um, so I'm going to read this, uh, the opening two paragraphs of The Led- Loved Dead. It is midnight. Before dawn, they will find me and take me back to the black cell where I shall languish interminably while insatiable desires gnaw at my vitals and wither up my heart. Till at last I become one with the dead that I love. 
and then uh, opening <laughs> he describes the scene around him while he's writing this confession again uh, very similar I, I i wonder what the circumstances are for the the tomb like he's writing this so that the public may know a little bit about <laughs> no he keeps trying to hide the fact that there are other things that are weird about him but that they're not relevant to this part of the story so this guy is completely confessing what he's done he goes my seat is a fetid hollow of an aged grave. My desk is the back of a fallen tombstone worn smooth by devastating centuries. My only light is that of the stars and the thin-edged moon, yet I can see as clearly as though it were midday. Around me on every side sepulchral sentinels guarding unkempt graves, the tilting decrepit headstones lie half-hidden in masses of nauseous rotting vegetation. Above the rest, silhouetted against the livid sky, an august monument lifts its austere tapering spire like the spectral chieftain of the Lemurian horde. The air is heavy with the noxious odors of fungi and the scent of damp, moldy earth, but to me it is the aroma of Elysium. It is still, terrifyingly still, with a silence whose very profundity bespeaks the solemn and hideous. Could I choose my habitation, it would be in the heart of some such city of putrefying flesh and crumbling bones, for their nearness sends ecstatic thrills through my soul, causing the stagnant blood to race through my veins and my torpid heart to pound with delirious joy, for the presence of death is life to me. <laughs> I think it's so funny. Um, it was really offensive to people um, when it was written. But <laughs> he's taking sort of this—he's taking a, a sort of a satire of himself. I think he's sort of making fun of himself and his uh, his sort of thanatophilic tendencies, his, his death, being towards death tendencies. So how much was Lovecraft behind the story? I'm looking at the Wikipedia. Oh, I don't see much mention. Oh, I, I, I've i read it, so I can tell you, he was yeah. totally involved in it. I cannot tell. Like, C.M. Eddie Jr. was a friend of his. So um, yeah, I, I, got think, that. I think it was mostly a co-written, and Lovecraft did all the polish, because there's very little. I've read a lot of his, um, his stuff, and there's some of it is, like, you can see he wrote this line and he wrote that line, but... I think he's incredibly connected to this story. It, in one of, it is one of, it's the title, I think, uh, The Love Dead and Others is the title of yeah. the entire. Um, it, it's the best of his uh, collaborations that I've read so far. A lot of them are sort of, uh, there's another one called Ashes that he wrote with C.M. Eddie Jr. And that one is less Lovecraft and more Eddie, I think. Okay. But it's, it, it, as, as far as I know, there's no way to tell who wrote what parts of it like literally sitting down and looking at the text so i i'm i just feel lovecraft all over this it, it's it's um it's got his language holy and his sentence construction it's really great very very delectable <laughs> some people accused him of being a, a, a cannibal story he's it's not a cannibal story he's not he's not a He's ghoulish, but he doesn't eat the bodies. He he has sex with them instead. Or... <laughs> <laughs> they are not for eating. Oh, no. Not for lovemaking either. <laughs> it's, it's utterly delightful. <laughs> oh, my. 
This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.